1: We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio.
0: I grew up in Long Island, in suburbia. My dad went to college at night on the GI Bill. My mom was a housewife. They had five kids in eight years, you know, and I was the oldest. And we all went to Catholic grammar school, Catholic high school, Catholic college. We were very involved in our parish, very involved in our church. I played little league baseball and I I played football in college. My dad worked in commercial uh, real estate in Manhattan. And uh, for a guy, you know, who went to night school and got his bachelor's degree when I was like four, he did quite well. But I was anxious as a kid. I know what it's called now because of the field I work in. It's called trichotillomania, where you pull your hair out. I can remember doing that when I was like four or five. And then I did some grunting noise with my throat that my parents sent me to see a doctor who said, stop doing that. And then I did something with my jaw. So there was a lot of anxiety. Or I would be in second grade and have to urinate like 20 times a day. I remember the teacher yelling at me. I'm not sure where the anxiety came from.
4: That's Mark Redmond, Executive Director of Spectrum Youth and Family Services, storyteller, and author of the memoir, Called. Marx is a story about the stigma and shame surrounding depression and the temptation to keep silent about it and the courage and liberation that comes from telling it like it is about something that affects so many of us. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves.
0: I suffered from what we now call imposter syndrome. So I would do really well in school. I mean, I was a good student from like first grade on. But I can remember, you know, fifth grade would end and I'd be like at the top of the class. And then all that summer, I think is sixth grade the year when they finally find out I'm really not that smart, you know? And of course, I do really well in sixth grade. And then the next year I'd be like, is the next year where they, you know? So we call that imposter syndrome now. So I definitely had that going on as well. But I pretty much had anxiety baked into my personality, I think, early on.
4: How did your parents handle it, the various... And, you know, this was not at a time where there was so much psychological awareness of the way that kids would, you know, go through various things. There wasn't nearly as much infrastructure of help available for that.
0: There was definitely not. I mean, (laughs) they probably did what most parents then did. They would say, hey, stop doing that. Stop pulling your hair out, you know.
4: Tell me a little bit about your mom.
0: My mom grew up in Brooklyn. Her mom died when she was three years old. Her mom died of a heart attack. Her own dad then died, I think, when he was like 55. My dad's died when he was eight. There was a lot of early death in our family. I think there was a lot of early death in that generation. My mom had cousins who fought in World War II who never came back. I think the Great Depression made a big impression on both of my parents. I know that really scarred my dad, you know, just that after his dad died, there really weren't the security benefits you have now for families. I remember him taking me to, like, a Brooks Brothers store and making me try on all these suits, which I hated and I hate now. And uh, I turned to my mom and I said, why does Daddy make me put on all these outfits? And she said, because when he was your age, he got all of his clothes secondhand from the church. So he wants you to have what he couldn't have then. So they knew what it was like to want, you know, And I think they were determined to give us, including a college education. It's one of my dad's proudest things to this day, that he sent all five of his kids to private colleges without one dime of debt.
4: When it comes time for Mark to go to college, he's still struggling with the same imposter syndrome he's experienced since grade school. He applies to a bunch of Ivy League universities, but doesn't get in. So he decides to go to Villanova a good school, and familiar to him because his cousin goes there. But as he enters college, Mark is uncertain about his path.
0: I remember at the end of my senior high school, you had to fill out some form and you had to pick a major. You Couldn't go in undeclared back then. So there were four boxes. One was nursing, one was arts and sciences, one was engineering, and one was business. So I turned to my dad and said, Hey, which box should I check? So he said, Well, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I don't know. I'm 17. I don't have a clue. He said, well, put down business because that's what he was. It made sense. He was a businessman and it provided him with a very good life. So I said, Okay, I'll be a business major. So that's what I did. And I, I went through four years. I didn't really enjoy it. I didn't like it. I wasn't interested in it, but I was good at it. I never really questioned until my senior year of high school, what I was gonna do. I really felt like I'm destined to, you know, probably work on Wall Street. But I read a cover story, this Philadelphia native, a young guy who had been working in Guatemala after a terrible earthquake there. And he was now walking from Guatemala to his home city of Philadelphia to raise money, to go back and help the people in Guatemala. And I read that and thought, wow, that's like amazing. So a couple of weeks later, I played in the rugby team at Villanova and our big rival was Georgetown. And we're down there in D.C., we would all meet in, the, in front of this statue at Georgetown. And I'm sitting there waiting for my teammates and I see this van there and it's got all these balloons and it's all these little kids. And it's like a fun run or a fun walk. And then I see this young guy in his 20s. He's tan. And for some reason, he comes over and he starts talking to us. And he asks us who we are. We say, oh, we're going over Rugby. And he goes, oh, I went to Georgetown. And I played rugby. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my gosh. This is the guy. This is the guy I read about a couple of months ago. I guess he's made it to D.C. So anyway couple of weeks later i always went to church on sunday at villanova the most popular mass was the 6 p.m mass and the priest gets to give the homily and says the guest homilist today is a, a young man named edward fisher who has walked from guatemala all the way here to philadelphia i'm like oh my god, this is the same guy so he gets up there and he shows slides of the devastation in guatemala and what he's doing and how they're trying to rebuild And he talks about his walk and how he says, I look out at you kids and I see myself a couple of years ago when I was in college at Georgetown. And, you know, I had money and I had a car and I had a career and now I have nothing and I'm as happy as I could be. And I can't wait to go back to Guatemala and help the people there. Well... At the end of that mass, I just stood there. I was like the last person standing there in the, in the chapel. And I was just so moved by what he said, you know. In fact, I felt like screaming out to all the other students, where are you all going? How can you all just now go and leave and, and study and, you know, whatever you're studying after what we just heard? Funny, I go back to Villanova every five years for my reunion. I know exactly where I was seated in that chapel that day, and I go back and I look there and I think that's where all this started. That was the first inkling I ever had that maybe I wasn't going to end up on Wall Street. Maybe my career wasn't going to be in business.
4: Emboldened by his encounter with Edward Fisher, after Mark graduates, he immediately joins the Peace Corps, and he's sent to Guatemala. Coincidence? Mark wants so badly to help to adapt to the landscape, not to feel like an imposter. But he struggles.
0: I think I wasn't really realistic, and it just like hit me when I got down there. I just suddenly felt like, what am I doing here? And they were like, you know, you'll start the first three months here with the other 40 volunteers, but then we're all going to send you to different parts of the country alone, and, you know, maybe you'll see another volunteer once every few months because, you know, the roads are really bad and they wash out and there's no transportation. I thought this was for me. This is not for me. And I was not the first one to go. There are a bunch of people who never even made it to Guatemala. We had to go to Miami for an orientation first. And about four, four people jumped out of that. And then I think out of the 42 of us, a good 14 or 15 would eventually leave. But I was one of the first ones. I I was literally home in 10 days and I was embarrassed as heck. You know, I had told everybody, oh, I'm going down to Guatemala. I turned down all these corporate jobs on Wall Street. You know, I'm doing this great thing. And I, I was just humiliated. I just wanted to hide in my basement for two years and then crawl out and say, hey, I'm back.
4: Of course, Mark cannot stay hiding forever. He needs to buckle down and get a job. Still disappointed in himself for leaving the Peace Corps, he explores other opportunities, other paths altogether. He ends up with a great job, a management training program at Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. It's 1979, and Mark heads into this new career. He's finally putting those Brooks Brothers suits to use.
0: Their office was was in one Madison Square. And I showed up and I met the other nine, you know, trainees. Most of them had graduated from Ivy League schools. Some of them had their MBA. I was one of the few with just a bachelor's degree from a non-Ivy. It was supposed to be a three-year training program. And we were going to do different rotations throughout the company, you know, IT, sales, marketing. And then we were going to be the future leaders of Metropolitan Life. And a lot of them ended up that way. (laughs) First year, they put me in an office on Long Island. So I lived in my parents' basement. And then the next year, they moved me into the city. So I got a wonderful studio apartment on 62nd Street between Park Avenue and Lexington Avenue. And I would walk down Park Avenue every morning to my job at One Madison Avenue. At first, I was elated. This is great. My life's back on track, you know. I had my college girlfriend in Philadelphia. Oh, a lot of my Villanova friends were living in the city. We'd all go to the same bars, and we were always poor in college. You know, we have money in our pocket. We can go to restaurants. I thought, this is it. But I hated the work. I hated the work. It didn't take me long to realize crunching numbers, learning about insurance policy. It just, not that it was wrong or... It it just wasn't me. I knew I was just playing this role that wasn't me, you know?
4: So what was the turning point?
0: I had a friend. She started at ABC News after college and left there to start working at Covenant House, which was a shelter for homeless teenagers in Times Square, which is still there. She said, we need volunteers to come here at night. And then I went back to Villanova to visit a friend. And she said, hey there's an event on campus it's about the it's this volunteer fair i want why don't you come with me and i was like yeah okay and it was different nonprofit organizations and somebody from covenant house was there and they showed this film about the work they were doing with homeless teens so i went up to this elderly woman she looked like a suburban grandmother and i said you know i'm interested in volunteering i'm I'm living in new york city I, i just moved in there and I don't know, maybe I can help out one night a week. So she, we exchanged phone numbers and I went to visit her. And I'll never forget. She said, uh, you know, we'd love to have you volunteer here. You know, whatever night a week you want to come, but you know, there's a group of us who are full-time volunteers. It's a one-year program where you live here in Times Square and we give you $12 a week and you work full-time with the kids. I think you should consider that. In fact, You have to come on an orientation and I've got an opening in May. I'll put you down for it. I thought, let the nice little lady put your name down for the week in May. It's so easy to get out of this. Just one phone call, just humor her. So (laughs) that's what I did. I said, okay, yeah, yeah, put me down. And then I started going. Every Tuesday night, I would, instead of taking the uh, Lexington Avenue line, I would take the R train and I'd get off at Times Square and in 1981, Rolling Stone magazine called Times Square the sleaziest block in America, and it was. As my brother said recently, yeah, back then you ran through Times Square. So I would kind of scurry over to Covenant House, uh, and then I would have a gym bag, and I would change it to like sneakers and jeans and you know a t-shirt, and I would play basketball, I would hand out snacks, that kind of thing. And I would say doing that Week after week after week, like I can't, I I can't remember one moment. It just kind of dawned on me like, this is what I should be doing. I remember going to some meeting at MetLife, me and the other nine trainees. And we met with some senior vice president. He said, you know, we're now at uh, 80 billion in assets. It's the beginning of the decade. And our goal by the end of the decade is to get to 120 billion in assets. And that's the goal, that's what you all have to work towards. And I remember sitting there thinking, that is not my goal. It's fine if that's somebody else's goal, that is not what I want to dedicate my life to, to getting 120 billion in assets. I would rather be dedicating myself to the kids at Covenant House and helping homeless kids get off the street and find a better way to live. That's my goal.
2: We'll be right back. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet.
6: Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: More Than a Movie is back with Season 2 of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia.
0: He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny.
4: In pursuit of his new goal, Mark switches gears. He leaves MetLife and goes to work full time for Covenant House. He's there for two and a half years, during which he's elected to be the leader of all the full time volunteers. He gets to travel too, back to Guatemala, in fact, as Covenant House is expanding, opening up divisions globally. Also during his time at Covenant House, he falls in love with another volunteer. They get married. He gets his degree at NYU and ends up at another nonprofit organization to help homeless kids called Epiphany. Epiphany, however, is a difficult place with a difficult history. There's corruption, theft, some staff members are even selling drugs to the kids. Sometimes there's physical harm and danger. Eventually, though, Mark helps the organization to repair and creates a model program for homeless youth. He's following his credo best illustrated by a quote from the psychologist Abraham Maslow. A musician must make music. An artist must paint. A poet must write. If he is to be ultimately at peace with himself. What a man can be, he must be.
0: I ended up leaving there in April of 1992, which got me up to St. Christopher's. I I saw an ad in the New York Times. And for a director of a residential treatment center for teenagers, and I applied and I got that job.
4: And where was St. Christopher's?
0: Dobbs Ferry, New York, which is right on the Hudson. It was beautiful, right on the Hudson River, very close, right above Yonker. I mean, it was like a 25-minute ride to Grand Central.
4: By this point, Mark and his wife have a son. At first, Mark commutes to and from Dobbs Ferry, but then St. Christopher's requires that Mark live on campus. If anything happens in the middle of the night with these kids, Mark needs to be right there on site. So they provide a house for Mark and his family, and they move to Dobbs Ferry. Though Mark is advancing in his career, his marriage is floundering. They're just mismatched. Mark is seeing a therapist who helps him realize that he's not happy, and won't be happy, unless he and his wife break ties.
0: So I, that, we got divorced at some date in July of 94. And I remember I stopped seeing the therapist like, I don't know, three months earlier, April or May. And the last time I saw him, I said, thank you, it's, you've been great for me. You've helped me with this decision. You know, I'm going to end therapy now. And he said, you know, a lot of men, when the actual divorce goes through, they have an emotional reaction. And I said, well, that's not going to happen with me. You know, I said, I am absolutely certain of this decision. And I said, besides, even if I did, what would you recommend? And he said, well, I'd recommend you go on medication. We shook hands, said goodbye. And it's the day of the divorce. You know, my wife and I, we, found, we kicked the lawyers out of the room because uh, lawyers always want you to get more. And I was finally like, what do you need? This is what I need. Great. We agreed on it. We signed the papers. So I left the office in Manhattan where the lawyers were. And I stopped. I remember I stopped at some store. I bought a book and I bought one of those pre-wrapped like egg salad sandwiches, because I hadn't had lunch. And I thought, I'll eat this on the ride, uh, train ride up to Westchester. And I took like two bites, and my all of a sudden my stomach felt queasy. And I thought, ah, that stomach ache again. And I had been having these stomach issues for the last couple of years. They would come and go. I went and saw a doctor once. And he said, there's nothing wrong with you. So I thought that's weird. I feel nauseous. Went home. We had shared custody, our son was seven, so I got him from school, brought him home, made him dinner. And I went to bed and I couldn't sleep. Went through the whole night tossing and could not sleep. So I get up in the morning and I'm dragging, and I go down and uh, took my son to the bus stop and I couldn't eat the next day. I was not hungry, I had no appetite at all for breakfast. Drag myself through the day and I figure, well surely still not hungry, I said, well, surely I'll go to sleep tonight, right? I've been up for like, I don't know how many hours straight. Couldn't sleep again. So then the next morning, still can't eat. And now it's starting to occur to me like, this is not a stomach thing. This is not a stomach bug. This could be anxiety. So I called my old therapist up and I said, "Um, remember you said that to me a few months ago that like, you know, some men have like an old shrewd. I said, something's going on with me. Can I come and see you? so he was like yeah sure come and see me tomorrow at what three o'clock i don't sleep another night. i go in to see him the next day and as soon as i walk in he says you look like hell and i said yeah i haven't slept in like days and i, and I haven't eaten anything either so he said well you're depressed i said no no i'm not depressed i'm happy you know i'm out of this marriage i have this uh, new girlfriend i really like and you know, I have shared custody of my son and a job I really love, so I- I'm happy. He said, "No, you're depressed." He said, "Insomnia and lack of appetite are like the two principal symptoms of depression." So he said, "I th-, he couldn't prescribe medication." He said, "I think you should go see the psychiatrist who I work with. He can prescribe medication."
4: But Mark is apprehensive about medication. He's never taken anything for depression, and further. He doesn't believe he's depressed. Something else must be going on, he thinks. But he takes down the psychiatrist's name anyway, just in case.
0: That night, I remember going for a long walk. It's so funny how the human mind works. I'm going for a long walk, and for some reason, I remember that in high school, I read a book by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross called On Death and Dying. And I remember there were five stages on death and dying. And I remember there was anger, denial, bargaining, and the last one was acceptance. But there was a fourth one. There was one, I couldn't remember what the fourth step was and I knew it had the same first letter as one of those others. So there was either an A, a D, or B, okay? And I'm walking, what is it, what is the reason? I walked in the house and all of a sudden it popped in my mind, the fourth step is depression. And it was like my mind's way of telling me, no, that's what this is. You are depressed. So another night of not sleeping, I called a psychiatrist. And I was lucky. Today would take you months to see one. I think I went in that afternoon to see him. So I described what I'm going through. And he said, I'm going to prescribe three medications for you. Prozac, something called Buspar for anxiety, and then something called Restorol to sleep so I was like three medications he was like don't worry I know what I'm doing other people have been on this you know so I remember he went to hand me the script and before he handed it to me he pulled it back and he said this is not the cure the cure is in that therapist's office this is just to get you functioning again so I go into the pharmacy and I give the scripts to the pharmacist and the guy says "Uh, Okay, yeah, we close soon. So these come back tomorrow. And I almost like reached across the counter and I said to the guy, no, 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 you don't understand. I need that medication now. And here I was, the guy who like 24 hours ago was never going to go on medication. So anyway, he was like, oh, okay. So he gave me the pills. But antidepressants and these other medications – it's not magical. You know, they don't kick in right away. It takes time. Then you get to find out if you're on the right one and if you're on the right dosage. So really, that began like three or four months of a deep, deep depression. And my weight at my heaviest, I was 186 pounds. Within a couple of months, I remember getting on the scale and it said 147. And I remember thinking, holy shit, like I have got to figure out a way to get food into me, you know. And I can remember holding a banana up and looking at it and thinking, if I try really, really hard, I can eat this banana. And then I went and bought some powder at a health food store that if you mixed it with milk would put on weight. I was desperate to try and get food into my body, but my anxiety was like sky high.
4: And you were also having panic attacks during this time?
0: I would have panic attacks that felt like a heart attack. I would have night sweats. I would wake up in the morning and you could wring my shirt out. I was a wreck. I was, I could, it wasn't even day by day. It was hour by hour.
4: Mark's therapist advises him to keep going to work, that work is good for him. Even if he has sleepless night after sleepless night, The work will keep him afloat. And of course, the irony is not lost on Mark that he works with others who are suffering from similar afflictions, depression, anxiety. And though he might feel solace in this common ground, he tries to hide his depression at first, tries to keep it a secret. But since he's so physically altered, since he's lost so much weight, the secret is hard to contain.
0: Thankfully, my boss, the executive director, was a trained clinician, mental health clinician. I confided in him. I found out there was one staff member working there I was close to. A year later, when I was better, he said to me, Redmond, everybody in this place thought you were a crack addict because crack was the drug of choice then taken down there. And he goes, when people lose weight super fast, it's because of crack. So that was what the entire staff here thought, that you were on crack. Can you imagine? i said i wasn't i was depressed it was depression but i had a psychologist on staff i had to confide she could see how miserable i looked you know i confided in her but i tried as best as i could just to get into work and try to do my job but it was it was just hard as hell because even on medication i would still only get three or four hours of sleep It was hard to concentrate i would have a conversation with somebody. I remember talking to my brother on the phone and he said, you know, you just told me the same thing three times in a 10 minute period. So it was just trying to get, because I was like, if I lose this job, I lose my house. I might lose shared custody of my son. You know, this, this is, I could lose everything. So it was just struggling. I was going to therapy twice a week. I was, I had read that exercise is key in terms of overcoming depression. So I would get on this bicycle and bike for as tired as I was, I would make myself ride this bike for like an hour or two every night. The thing that would help more than anything else was uh, somebody would come up to me and whisper to me, I got divorced two years ago and this happened to me. And I would look at them and they would look good. And I remember thinking, like, that person looks okay. And, like, maybe I'll be okay again too someday. So I was just hanging on to hope that the therapy, the medication, I began meditating every day, the bicycling, that it would somehow pay off.
4: We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets.
6: Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the
3: award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia.
0: He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny.
4: is a culmination of myriad troubles, subconscious troubles, that his body has been storing, trying to signal to him for quite some time. Those lifelong stomach aches have been trying to tell him something. The trichotillomania, too. And then there were the dangers and instability he'd been repeatedly exposed to at his places of work. And there was the unhappiness at the core of his marriage, largely unspoken about until it could no longer be subdued. And while the divorce was necessary... Mutually decided upon between he and his ex-wife. It broke something open in Mark. It catalyzed his depression. But ultimately, his healing, too.
0: The divorce was the absolute trigger. Even though we were a mismatch, I really love this person. And you get so angry in a divorce, you forget you once did love. And, you know, I'm Catholic. Nobody in my family ever got divorced, you know, maybe one cousin. Like, if somebody told me the day I'm getting married, hey, you're going to... I, that was the furthest thing that was never going to happen. We weren't good for each other, but I loved her. But we just weren't good for each other. And I don't think either of us was happy, but I was really, in a way, I was broken-hearted.
4: In addition to the heartbreak of the divorce, Mark also struggles with shame. He feels, as a Catholic, he shouldn't be divorced. He shouldn't be depressed. He shouldn't be on medication. And as we know... Shame begets secrecy, and secrecy begets shame."
0: My therapist, he was like, listen, Redmond, you are marinated in guilt. And you know, I grew up in like this pre-Vatican II Catholic Church where like, you were born bad, you were born with original sin, and God's mad at you. And uh, you know, that was the kind of, and I bought a hook, lion, sinker, you know, I was an altar boy, I bought into that whole thing. and. That was in there too i mean that all had to through therapy that all had to be washed out brought out in the wash i'm weak i shouldn't be especially as a man right i was ashamed of it i was ashamed of being in meds i was ashamed i was going through this what's wrong with me i shouldn't be doing and i kept what's i kept trying to figure the more i tried to figure it out the more i tried to make it go away the more it's stuck It stuck like glue and it was funny, My I had a spiritual director who was a nun. She gave me a Zen book about depression written by a Zen teacher. And one of the lines in the book was, that which we accept is healed. And the more I accepted, I'm depressed. And that's just the way it is. It would almost magically lift for a time.
4: The book is called, aptly, The Depression Book. And the author is Sherry Huber. At first, Mark doesn't read it. He doesn't even open it. It seems too whimsical to him, a silly book of aphorisms with little drawings of people meditating. But when he finally does open it, he realizes he's been wrong, very wrong. This book is not silly. In fact, it's life-saving. So what was it that was so healing about the depression book?
0: That whole idea of acceptance was huge to me. She has a drawing there of like hills and like, we want to go from one hill to the next, you know? So this divorce ended. Now I have this new girlfriend and wow, she's great. And I can just go to that, everything's great now. And her thing is like, no, in life, we need to go through these hills and then these downslides too, these valleys, whatever you want to call them. And she had this whole thing about like, anytime we're saying, I shouldn't feel this, I shouldn't be doing this. Any of those shoulds, that's poison. That's self-hatred. That's where you're hating yourself. And I realized, like, I shouldn't be feeling this way. I shouldn't be going through this. What's wrong with me? You know, that was all self-hatred. And all that had to come out, too. Right. All the pressure i had always put on myself from childhood, the, the imposter syndrome. I quit the Peace Corps. There's something wrong with me. All the times, all the pressure i had always put on myself. It was so good I went through the depression, as horrible as it was, because like all that came out through therapy, and it changed me as a person. I remember reading a book, because I started studying up on all the. I read uh, Star, William Styron's book on depression, and they call it, like, sawtooth. Like, you think you start to feel better, and you're like, great, it's over. And then, bam, you're back down again. And you're like, what? And it's funny, I remember some woman came to me at work. She was leaving, and she said... You look like shit again. I was like, I know. And last week I felt so good. I don't get it. I feel terrible again. And I remember she grabbed me by the lapels and she yelled at me. And she said, my father died in his 50s and my mother was heartbroken. And she went through this and she was in a depression and you just have to go through it. And I remember it. I was like, she's right. It was about acceptance and learning and learning about myself. It's not a linear path. Maybe it is for some people, but most of the literature will tell you it's a zigzag pattern. In fact, the guy who had been through it at work, he said, man, I had this too. I got divorced and you feel shitty, then you feel good, then you feel shitty. I said, what finally happens? He goes, one day you feel good and you just keep feeling good and you're out of it. And I said, how'd you feel then? And he said, you feel like the luckiest man on the face of the planet, which is true. It's really true.
4: Though Mark's mental health has improved, things, after all, are not linear. His work is intense and challenging. One winter night at St. Christopher's, some girls break loose in the freezing cold, and he goes to find them. He's worried for their lives. He ends up pushing his way through a chain-link fence to get to them. And though he doesn't realize it in the moment, he's cut his face really badly. He's gushing blood and ends up needing plastic surgery.
0: So at St. Christopher's, it was 72 kids. Many of them had been abused, neglected. Some of them were former drug dealers, former gang members. They had been in prison. They were only 15 or 16. And almost every girl there, it's sad, had been sexually abused at some point, you know? So there was tremendous trauma among these kids. And I had to live on the grounds. I had to live right there. That was the idea. And I think for four years, I was fine. And I was very proud. It just wore me down to the point where that was finally having my nose almost sliced off my face was the final, like that was like the final straw. Like, I can't do this anymore. I just can't do this. I can't, you know, I love working with these kids. Uh, I, going through the depression made me much more compassionate towards them because I finally learned what it felt like to feel like crap and they feel like crap most of the time their whole life.
4: Mark wants to continue working with kids, but he knows he needs to be in another environment. He resigns and starts the first charter school for low-income children in a new town, in a new state. And in starting anew, he can keep the truth of his depression under wraps. No one will know him or what he's been through. He takes this opportunity to keep quiet, start fresh, as if all that had never happened.
0: Nobody needed to know that I went through this. You know, when I started working in Connecticut, all the new co-workers there and friends. Eventually, I started dating somebody a couple years later, and we got serious, and I told her, because I could tell we were heading towards engagement. And I said, I need to tell you this. In 1994, I went through this whole episode. So we ended up getting married. She accepted that. But then when I moved to Vermont, when they interviewed me for the job here in Vermont, which was five years after Connecticut. I remember in the final interview, the board said to me, so is there anything about you we should know? And another board member said, yeah, do you have any secrets you're not telling us? And I remember thinking, yeah, I got a secret I'm not telling you. And I'm, I'm not telling you, I'm thinking, because I really want to get this job. So all the people I know up here, all the dozens and hundreds of people now, I've been working in 19 years in Vermont as director of this program for homeless kids. Nobody knows about this. Even my son, my son who was seven when I went through this, he's 35. He's a psychiatric nurse. He doesn't know I went through this. My new son, who's 19 now, he doesn't know about any of this. So this has been the thing that I've kept locked in a box since 1994.
4: Though the story of his depression is not one he shares, Mark does begin to tell stories. In fact, he begins to tell stories publicly. He leaves a two-minute pitch on the moth storytelling number. Next thing he knows, he's on stage in Burlington, in Montreal, in Boston, telling stories. But for the most part, these are other stories. They are not stories about 1994. Soon after these performances, he decides to chronicle his life in writing, too. He decides to write a memoir. He's writing it chronologically. And eventually... Inevitably, he gets to the 1990s.
0: When I got to the 1990s, I was like, okay, do I put this in the book? Okay. Do I put this whole episode of depression and what I went through and going on meds? Do I put that in the book? Because so many people have no idea about this. My relatives, you know. And I decided I was going to put it in. I was decided, I'm not like Frederick Douglass who wrote three memoirs. I'm going to write one memoir. I get one bite at this apple and I'm going to write that story and I'm going to put that in. So that was a key decision. And I remember I gave an early draft of the book to my wife, my present wife. And I said, what do you think about that chapter about depression? And she said one word harrowing, and I think that's a good adjective to use for that chapter.
4: Sometimes the very act of writing gives you permission to tell the whole story. That's what happened here. Mark's secret about his depression was like a pilot light within him, always there, always burning. And when he eventually does tell his whole story, including the most shameful parts he realizes so many people are also struggling with shame, with depression, with resistance to getting help, resistance to even giving it a name. Mark realizes that the divulging of his secret is not only helpful to him, but it can also help liberate others, which is ultimately the most meaningful thing of all. The truth helps make us whole.
0: There was a piece of me that wanted to get this out. I decided pretty early if I'm writing a memoir, this was a key, key piece of my life.
4: Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Molly Zakur is the story editor. And Dylan Fagan is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, please leave us a voicemail and your story could appear on an upcoming episode. Our number is one secret 0 That's the number zero. You can also find me on Instagram at Danny Writer. And if you'd like to know more about the story that inspired this podcast, check out my memoir, Inheritance.
1: For
3: more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
2: Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The
1: Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God.